seated. And we're to page 797. If you need the Pew Bible, I would encourage everybody to follow along as we read Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10. The word of the Lord to us this evening. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and he will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone. From him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. And they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. You shall pass through the sea of troubles, strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Well, Zechariah 9 concluded with an inspiring picture and promise of Israel's future under the reign of uh, the coming king, the long-awaited messianic king. You remember Zechariah 9 uh, last week, and if you weren't here last week, it's a passage that you know well. Rejoice greatly, verse 9, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, as he humble and mounted on a donkey. So this is the king of peace who would come, and he would come to speak peace to the nations, usher in a time of prosperity and peace for the people, those people who were currently occupied by a foreign power. But that's the predicament, right, that... That's a wonderful, idealistic picture that chapter 9 paints, but it's not a realistic one. And chapter 10 addresses the question that chapter 9 raises. That question being, well, that's all well and good. That's wonderful that a king will come who will speak peace and and will rule us, um, a king from our own people. But 
What do we do until then? What about now? What about right now until that moment comes? That's the question that chapter 9 is answering. And so in that sense, God gets very practical in this oracle. He speaks to the immediate needs of his people. And the answer to their current trouble is actually the same answer of their future hope. And here it is. Here's the answer. The Lord. The Lord and him alone, putting their faith in him and in no one else. And so this is instructive for you and me today as well, that the promises of God are not just a, a kind of far off, um, uh, far off hope for tomorrow, but that they have real present right now implications for us. They mean something for us today. They help us through today. We learn that from Israel's dire situation, as God tells them to look to him and no one else, to trust in him and no one else, to have faith in him and no one else, to lean upon him and no one else, to follow him and no one else. And why is that? Why should they do this? Well, he gives three reasons. He gives them three reasons why he alone is to be trusted and believed in. It's because he provides better, he loves better, and he saves better than any other hope or help we might turn to. He provides better, he loves better, and he saves better than any other hope or help we might turn to. So first, notice that God provides better. God provides better. Look at verses 1 through 2 with me. He provides better than two sources that are noted there. The very first source is nature itself. Ask rain from the Lord In the season of the spring rain. Well, that kind of seems counterintuitive. If there was ever a time where you might think, I don't need to pray for rain, it's during the rainy season. Uh, But Zechariah reminds Israel that they should never go through life assuming upon anything. Nature has its cycles only in that the Lord who created the world, the Lord of nature, gives them those cycles. The one who, as verse 1 says, made the storm clouds. And so we're never to presume upon creation without petitioning the creator. But we do that often, don't we? We, we assume that, you know, there, there's just going to be, especially at around, you know, 1130 midnight, food in the fridge when we look inside and we want some. Or when we open up the pantry, we just assume there will be food in the pantry. Or, you know, every week we go to the grocery store just expecting that the food that we need will be there on the shelves We don't think necessarily about the farmers who reap the crop, the truckers that ship that crop to refining uh, and processing plants, the distribution that takes place, and all the steps in between before the food gets to our homes. And so we might forget to pray in an affluent culture like our own, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. But Zechariah is reminding people to ask rain from the Lord even when you think you might not need to ask for rain. Because why? Because the Lord and the Lord alone is the one who provides. And he answers prayer. He provides in response to prayer. So the Lord provides better than nature even. But there um, is a second source that he provides better than, and that is the so-called household gods, idols. Despite all that God had done for them, idolatry was a perennial problem for Israel in that they still have these little statues, these little idols, um, kind of like the one that Rachel stole from Laban in Genesis. They still have these um, on their shelves in their house, you know, along the entertainment center. They still have these household gods. It's, it's 
it's blasphemous to say uh, the least. It's, it's embarrassing, you know, to think that God's people still at times turn to diviners and to, to false gods. But what does verse 2 say? The, the household gods, they utter nonsense. They don't make any sense when they talk because, well, because they don't talk at all, do they? They're, they're dumb. They're lifeless. The warning of Psalm 115 is this. Let me read for you from Psalm 115, beginning in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but can't smell. They have hands but can't feel, feet but can't walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And then here's the indictment. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. If you trust in these household gods, you will be just as dumb and as lifeless as they are. But then the exhortation comes in the very next verse in Psalm 115. O Israel, trust in the Lord. You'll you'll be dumb and lifeless if you trust in idols, but if you trust in the Lord, the life-giving God of, of the universe, you will be given life as well. So don't trust in the dependability of, of nature. You know, when the heavens can easily shut up and, and cause a famine or, or open up too greatly and, and a storm comes by and destroys the crop or destroys the storehouse. But trust the Lord who is always faithful. Don't trust dead idols that you have fashioned in your home. Trust the Lord who fashioned you after his own image. So God is calling on them to examine their faith in this moment. It's a reminder to the people of their obligation to their covenant God. In Deuteronomy uh, 28, the people were told what would happen if they go into the promised land, if they didn't turn to God, if they didn't trust in God. This is what the curse would be. Or No, here's what the blessing would be if they did turn to God. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 28, The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless the work of your hands. So, Covenant obedience led to that blessing of rain coming. But if they didn't obey, the next verse says this is what will happen. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder, and from heaven dust shall come down on you until you're destroyed. Friends, it, you, this, is what, this is what the people knew. This is what Zechariah had to remind them, though, that when they were in covenant with God, they had an obligation. It wasn't a choice. They had an obligation to trust in God and in no one else. And they have every reason to trust him as he provides better than any other source. And when you trust God, when you trust God to provide, or if you're, if you're wondering, how can I know if I trust God to provide? One of the sure ways that you can know that you trust God or one of the ways that you can, can work on trusting God is to pray. That's why it says, ask the Lord. Prayer is the proof of trust. When you trust in God, you will pray to him. You won't look to any other hope, any other help. You will pray. And in prayer, we, we, it's amazing, isn't it? Think about what prayer does. We tap into the inexhaustible resource that is our infinite God. He allows us to access all that is in him. And he answers our prayer. And so, in the moment of present distress, the people are reminded that God provides for them. Better than rain, better than idols, God provides. He also loves better. He doesn't just provide better, he loves better. He loves better in particular than any other leader. So if you notice, verse 2 pivots uh, to verse 3 with this theme of uh, sheep and shepherd. Therefore the people wander like sheep, and they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Because the people have failed to trust the Lord Uh, the Lord's provision, and they've turned to false gods and false prophets. Now they wander like sheep, 
and they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. And then it says, verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I'll punish the leaders. In the Old Testament, in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, shepherd was, this, uh, it was synonymous with, with leader. Okay, well, verse 2 says they don't have a leader, and then verse 3 says my anger is hot against the leaders. Well, what's the idea there? Well, well, they lack their own shepherd. They lack their own king, and who has come in instead? These foreign leaders, these foreign shepherds, and that's who God says he will punish, those who cause them to be distressed and oppressed. He will punish those leaders. And why will he do that? Well, it says right there in verse 3, For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock because he loves them. He loves his people. The temptation of leadership is always to get into it for the fame, for the recognition, uh, for the perks. But the real responsibility of leadership is to meet the needs of those being led. Not to build an empire on on the backs of one's subjects, but to work for and to fight for their protection, their welfare, their, their... Benefit. A good leader loves his people. And God is the one who has loved his people with an everlasting love. And in fact, he proves that love to Israel again right here when he says, I am going to send that leader that you lack, that that in-person flesh and blood king that you don't have right now. He says that leader will come from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Let's look there. Verse 3, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. He calls the house of Judah his flock and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. That's interesting. In one clause, that Judah's just a flock of sheep, and then the next they become this majestic war horse in the Lord's service. But then he says, from him, that's from Judah, shall come the cornerstone. From him shall come the tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler. All of them together. This is an echo of Genesis 49.10 when Jacob blesses, Israel blesses his sons and he comes to Judah and he says to him, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Rulers, kings will come from Judah. And who is this ultimate ruler that, that, that Zechariah is speaking of? Who is the one who is called the cornerstone? Who is the one who is mighty in battle? Who is the one who is the king of kings? Of course, the New Testament tells us so clearly that one is Jesus Christ. You look at everything there in verse 4. From him shall come the cornerstone. That's Jesus. The battle bow. The one mighty in battle. The, the, Lord, the captain of the Lord's army. That's Jesus. The, the ruler. What about the tent peg? What is that about, right? From him shall come the tent peg. Well, even that, actually, believe it or not, is a messianic prophecy. Okay, this is interesting. So we're going to turn in our Bibles. Let's go to Isaiah 22. Turn to Isaiah chapter 22. The, The verb there, or the word in Hebrew, which is translated tent peg, actually just means peg. Not tent peg specifically, but just a peg. Sometimes used to drive a, a, a you know a, a stake in the ground to hold up a tent, but other times more like a hook that would go into the wall for things to to hang from that, and that's how it's used in Isaiah 22. And I would dare say that's perhaps how it should be used in Zechariah as well. Okay, so let's look at Isaiah 22 
And we have this oracle against character called, verse 15, uh, Shebna. Uh, he's, Shebna is uh, the head advisor to the king at this time is Hezekiah. He's the steward over the entire nation of Israel. And in this oracle, he's presented as being a major opponent to Yahweh because of his selfishness, his self-reliant spirit. Um, and so God speaks a word against him. Look there, verse 19. I will thrust you from your office. And you'll be pulled down from your station. Okay, so, so this one who is, who is assisting the king and kind of leading the nation will be removed from office. Who will take over instead? Uh, who will be the steward after him? This man named Eliakim. Verse 20. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I'll clothe him with your robe, and I'll bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. He's going to do your job, Shebna, God's saying. And he shall be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So God's saying, I'm going to give the authority that you had, Shebna, and I'm going to give it to this other guy, Eliakim, and he's not going to abuse that authority. He's not going to be selfish with that authority. Rather, he's going to use it in love, like, like a father's love for his children to shepherd the people of Israel. And on account of this, what does God give Eliakim to, to Because he will use this authority so well, what does the Lord give him? Verse 22, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. He gives him the the key to the house of David. That is to say that he grants God grants um, Eliakim this blessing of admitting people Uh, into the promised land or refusing them entrance into the promised land he can shut or open that way into Yahweh's holy place and perhaps you you don't even need to turn to Revelation 3 to already know that that's clearly a messianic um, um, foreshadowing of Jesus Christ because Revelation chapter 3 does say that Jesus is the one who holds the key of David and whatever he opens no one can close and whatever he closes, no one can open namely the gates of heaven this is talking about Jesus Christ Eliakim is, is, is a type of Christ he's foreshadowing the Messiah okay you following still we're talking about tent pegs right verse 23 and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him, because he's like this, this hook on the wall, the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel, the cups, all the flagons, and that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off. For the Lord has spoken. Very interesting here. God will make Eliakim. He will fasten. He will affix him to the wall like a peg in a secure place. And they will hang on him the honor of all of Israel. But eventually it will give way. Eventually it will give way because no mere mortal can bear up all the honor, all the glory of God and his people. And so Zechariah tells us, no, from, from Judah will come another peg, this one that will be uh, fastened into the wall, so to speak. And on him, you know what? You can hang all of your hopes, all of your fears, 
all of your sin you hang upon him, and he will never give way. He will never become loosened from that place of security. You can place upon him all of your needs, and he can bear it up because he is the one who bears all the honor of his father. In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is fully God. He can take our troubles. He can take our cares and our concerns. And this he loves to do because he loves us. So God, God paints this picture of the, the future king, the true shepherd of the flock, as a means of confirming his people and his love right now at the present moment. The reason that they will one day receive this king from Judah is because they right now have received the love of God. Notice the, if we're back in Zechariah, notice the, the tense of the verbs. Uh, certain things are in the future, but other things are in, in the, the perfect or in the present tense. So, for example, verse 3, the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. Yes, I will punish the leaders because I care. Right now, I care. Or um, we see verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back. Why? Because I have compassion right now. God's future promises are anchored in his present love to you and me right now. And so we ask that question. What does a future prophecy about how great things are going to be help me right now in the midst of a current pressing hardship? That was true for Israel. They're wondering that. They're in exile. Uh, There's only partial restoration taking place. And we we wonder the same things. This is wonderful what what you're telling me will happen in heaven and and all that, God. But what about right now? Because it feels like I'm living through hell. What about right now? We need to recognize that God's love is an eternal, everlasting love. It has no end. It has no beginning. And the hope of future blessing in no way negates the reality of his present love to us. When you understand, when it clicks, friends, that God loves you right now, you will let him lead you wherever tomorrow. When you get that he loves you right now. And so that's what God's calling upon the people to do. To trust in his love for them and in their time of distress. To trust, trust that his love is, is better than any leader they've ever had before. I mean, even from the time that they were in Egypt, they've only known bad leaders. They've been enslaved in Egypt, and then after that, they, they wandered in the wilderness. And, and, and then, yes, they had David and, and Solomon, but that was just kind of like a blip on the timeline, really, because then they had uh, Rehoboam and, and um, Ahab and then Sennacherib from Assyria and Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. They've only known, essentially, if you just kind of take it as a, as a big picture, they've only known poor leadership. People that haven't loved them, that have loved themselves more than their people. God says, no, 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 I love you. I have compassion. I do care for you. And that should change your reality right now. Does it change yours? Does does the fact that God loves you, not that he will show his love to you, but that he is showing it to you now, even through a trial, even through a trouble, doesn't that change the way you think about that trial and trouble? It should. Christians have, uh, for centuries, voiced the affirmation of faith that this text is, is after in that beloved hymn by Fanny Crosby. All the way my Savior leads me. Oh, the fullness of his love. Perfect rest to me is promised. 
in my Father's house above. You see, the, the fullness of his love leads me to my Father's house. His love will lead us home. So why should you trust God today? Because better than any teacher, better than any parent, better than any pastor, take my word for it, he loves you. Better than any spouse, better than any sibling, better than any friend, he loves you. And he will never harm those whom he loves. That's why in H.W. Baker's classic setting of Psalm 23, he chose to describe God, who is our shepherd, as the king of love. The king of love, my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never, and I nothing lack when I am his, and he is mine forever. So Israel ought to trust the Lord because he provides better than any resource, because he loves better than any leader, finally tonight, because he saves better than any other. Isaiah says it emphatically. I'll read you Isaiah 45, 21, 22. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That same essential message is being proclaimed here in verses, we could say, 6 through 12. Really, 6 through 12, through the rest of that chapter, is really all about God's salvation. What do we learn of the salvation that comes from God alone? Let's just pinpoint three things. First, it's a salvation that leads to restoration. uh, Restoration and and even reversal. God is going to return his people to the prominence that they once had before the curse came, before the exile. So, verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph, and bring them back. And they shall be as though I had not rejected. It's a total reversal here. Uh, Verse 8 and following. Again, like a shepherd, God will whistle uh, for his lost sheep, and they will return. Why wouldn't they come back? He's redeemed them after all. Of course they would run back to him. He saved them. How could they remain far off? Verse 10, I will bring them home. Look, look at the, the image there. From the land of Egypt, gather them from Assyria. So there are, there are at this, this moment Israelites in Assyria. There likely are not Israelites in Egypt, but he kind of is borrowing Exodus language. You remember what it was like when you weren't at home and you were in Egypt, and he's saying, this is really, instead, this is what it's going to be. I'm going to bring, bring Israel back from every place that they ever were that wasn't their home, and I'll bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon until there's no more room for them. That's how full this restoration will be. You know, we, we talk about how, how the blessings of God is like being a, given a cup that overflows. And, and that's sort of how God pictures his own land. That, that it will be so, so full, so restored that he won't even be able to fill his own people, fit his own people there. It's a full restoration. Salvation is understood in terms of restoration. That's what you and I need too, by the way. We need to be restored to the image that we lost due to sin, that image of God, that, the, the image that was marred because of sin, rather, to, re, to reverse the effects of the curse of sin in our hearts. And that's what God's working out in, in your heart right now. If you believe, he's given you his spirit, and his spirit is slowly but surely making you return to God's original plan, recover that that 
beauty and glory of reflecting God that we lost in the garden. So first, the salvation is, it leads to restoration. Second, it leads to rejoicing. Do you see that there in verse 7? Their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad, and their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. The call to be redeemed from sin, friends, as unpleasant as it might feel from at times, right, to, to say no to sin, as, as um, yeah, unpleasant, unfun as that can be, is actually a call to joy, to give up lusts, to mortify things that we in some measure enjoy but we know go against God's will. That is not meant to make you miserable. Not at all. The exact opposite. It's that your joy would be complete. The only thing that can bring us real joy and gladness in in this life is following God's will for us. And isn't that so wonderful of God that he doesn't just care about the externals. He doesn't just care that we we do the right thing. He cares about the internal, too. He cares about how we feel. We can say that. I think that's true. God cares about our emotions, and his desire is that we be happy. He doesn't say, do these external steps, and I don't care how it makes you feel. No, what he says, do these external steps, and I can promise you, it might be hard, but it will bring you joy. It will bring you satisfaction. And I want that for you because I love you. What a God we serve. He never calls us to, yes, he calls us to hard things and difficult things, but he never calls us to something that's bad for us, never. He always is calling us to things that are for our good, and when we get that, we will be glad. Okay, there's a final thing about this salvation. It leads to restoration. It leads to rejoicing. Finally, it leads to service. It leads to service. And if somebody later has an R word that I could have used for service, you can tell me. We had restoration, rejoicing, and service. But notice it's impossible to miss all the I wills in in this passage, right? Especially starting with verse 6. The emphasis again and again and again is on what God, what God will do. The I in these Sentences is God. It's the divine I. Um, and, and we would expect that, right? He's the Savior after all. There is no other. He is the one who will do it. So I will strengthen. I will save. I will bring back. I will gather. I will redeem. And then you get to the very final verse, verse 12. And what do we find there? I will make them strong in the Lord, and they will walk in his name. It's the first time where it's not the first person singular. It's not an I now. It's a they. It's a you and me. What does this mean? What's this teaching us? It means that the point of God's salvation, of his restoring us, of his renewing our hearts, is so that we would live different lives, so that we would serve him. Walk is a metaphor for for living, for a lifestyle. Zechariah looks forward to a day when God will have gathered all the people back and he sees that the people will have no choice but to joyfully walk in the ways of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, that is in his power and in his authority, in his strength. They'll live life according to his will and to his ways. 
I will, I will, I will, I will, so that they will. But friends, this side of the cross, the verbs take on a different tense, don't they? We should understand those verbs slightly differently. It's not that God will and we will. It's God has, so we must. He has. He has saved us. He has restored us in Christ. He has done all these things through the shed blood of his Son, and so we must walk in the name of the Lord, in light of the great salvation that God has won for you, restoring you, redeeming you from sin, putting joy in your heart. How are you living your life? How are you walking? And the answer to that question is of the utmost importance, not for tomorrow, not for the future, but for right now. How are you walking? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that your word makes us wise. Uh, We thank you that it directs us in the way that we should go and that it's a light into our path, a lamp for our feet. We ask that we would not stumble long in life, rather that we would cling to the light of your word and that we would allow it and you to lead us. Lord, how could we look to any other for direction, for consolation, for hope or provision when you are the God and the only God who provides better, who loves better, who saves better than all those vain and empty and worthless things we so often look to for help and for hope. Forgive us for that. Instead, direct our eyes to you, direct our steps to follow after you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.